First Corinthians chapter 11. It's kind of a transition point for the apostle and therefore for the church at Corinth as well. And uh, the way it opens, it's going to call for us to uh, drive down the tarmac of the runway for a little bit before we lift off. And that's what we want to kind of deal with today. Um, points one and two will be the essence of what we look at, and then we'll just touch on point three. The actual um, study for us is the hierarchy of God's rule. It's a term I've used before. Hierarchy um, is a term that means a system of authorities. Hierarchy is a system of authorities. And that's really what Paul is going to get into. It's an interesting kind of transition from what he was dealing with in chapter 10, almost non-related in terms of the subject matter. But what you can know as we get ready to do the study is that Paul is actually answering a list of questions that the church at Corinth has sent him by way of letters. And so he's come upon now uh, a very, very germane, I think, in terms of what we are in our, in our country, in our world, a very germane subject that will require some analysis, but it won't be that difficult. It's not going to be abstract simply because there's a real strong cultural element that um, will, will apply to us as Westerners uh, as well uh, in terms of historic behavior patterns, in terms of dress codes that, um, that were employed in time past to make a distinction between men and women. So there are two words that I'm going to be talking about, not ad nauseum, but I am going to bring them up. I want you to, to be able to capture them. The first word that we're going to be bringing to the table as we establish our order is going to be epi, epi, epi. And if I were to say it in the uh, long form, epihistomy, histomy, epihistomy. Actually, when you break it off and contract it in the English, it's called epistomy. Or we have a discipline in logic, a discipline in science called epistemology, epistemology. It is the contra contraction of the idea of epic and histomy. Histomy means to stand, to stand. Epi is a prefix that is declaring often around or out of, to stand around or out of. It really is the idea of establishing a premise. Another way that we understand epistemy is the idea of being grounded in certain ideas. Grounded in certain ideas. That's what I'm going to talk about when we get to verse 3. That's going to be the first thing that Paul uh, calls our attention to. The other word that I want you to capture, you've heard me talk about it before, is the word taxi. <laughs> taxi is literally taxono taxonomy. Taxonomy, T-A-X-O-N-O-M-Y. I'll show you that when we work through the outline. Taxonomy is another Latin Greek term that is used to um, identify something that works in a structurally orderly fashion. A structurally orderly fashion. Um, whenever you go to major cities where there are a lot of taxis, 
and this was certainly the case many, many years ago, and not too many years ago in third world countries like Italy and Rome and, and uh, smaller places. Taxiing is about the only way you could get anywhere. And, and when, you, when you called a taxi, what you would get is taxi number one or taxi number two or taxi number three or taxi number four because they were lined up in order waiting to serve the public. So taxonomy is a Greek term that means an orderly structure of law, taxi and nomos, taxonomy, like economy, taxonomy. So economy is an ecosystem of nomos, of law, how we make things work on a financial level. Taxonomy is a structural approach to dealing with things in an orderly fashion. This is what we're about to deal with. Both of these words are going to be inherent in our subject, and our subject is the hierarchy of God's what? Rule. The way I framed it in the outline, because it's the way I want us to kind of build it up, you know what we do on Tuesdays, we kind of tear it apart, and then on Friday we put it back together again and then tear it apart again in Q&A. Um, the uh, hierarchy of God's rule should be seen everywhere in the world, but it should especially be seen in the world by the church. The church should be the evidence and manifestation and ground of both epistemology and taxonomy. The church should be the place where men and women discover what can be understood certainly and on solid ground, enough to be understood, believed, and uh, even to die for. We're going to be talking about that here in a bit. Uh, it transcends, if you will, a kind of theoretical, speculative uh, notion of what one might might believe, etc. And again, taxonomy is all about order, order. Certainty and order is what Paul is about to talk about in our text. So um, let me open in a word of prayer. First Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at nine verses today, uh, and then we'll pick it up again on Friday. Just going to tear it apart and then um, be ready for questions on Friday. Father, we're coming to you now, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for our class. We thank you for the students. We thank you for those online with us. We are so thankful for the model that the apostle has laid out to us concerning what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a patir, a father um, of men and women who have been redeemed and born again and thus brought into the mysteries of the gospel collectively. And we want to learn more from you through him for our good as the body of Christ as well. We have gathered together by your providence. We have been safely brought to this place. We are asking now that you grant us to give you undivided attention. Help us to not stray. Help us to not get lost in our minds and our heart. Help us to hear from you and comprehend your word and help us to be better for it. We are coming to you on the grounds of your son's blood, his cleansing and washing and sanctifying power, its ability to purge us and bring us into a state of sanctified renewal and fellowship with you. We are coming to you on the grounds of his righteousness, which is our standing. It is our true epistemology, O oh God. Him in us and we in him. And you in us and we in you. One 
with you, O God, for Christ's sake. We're asking your mercy upon our families, our children, our children's children, all who know you and who do not know you in the pardon of their sins. Be gracious. Spirit of God, open our eyes that we might behold the wonders of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have the outline, it'll help you. The outline will uh, be a way for us to begin to peer into what the apostle is saying. So start with me now at verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. He opens up chapter 11 with an imperative. An imperative is a commandment. So that's the way he's opening it up. That means this is going to be for the Corinthians a very important topic that he wants to address. And what he's going to do is embody this subject matter in his own person. He's going to embody the subject matter in his own person. He's motivating the church at Corinth now to actually hone in on him and follow him. Hone in on him and follow him. Under point number one, I have follow me in my, and then I have a long slash. The words you want to put there is walk, walk, walk. I, I've shared with you many times that the apostle Paul is a Hebrew. Because he's a Hebrew, halakha is a very prominent sort of uh, traditional discipline for Paul. He understood that there were two things that the believer is always called to, the Haggadah and the halakha. Halakha. Haggadah, halakha. Haggadah means talk. The people of God have always been known to be speakers, communicators, and talkers. Haggadah are the writings that actually talk about Torah, talk about Mishpat, talk about the law of God. You, you get these in the traditions of the Jewish fathers. They will talk about scripture at the analytical level, at the propositional level, at the theological level, and then at the... Um, at the level of how we are to understand the world on a kind of um, philosophical level, Haggadah. That's what we'll get into in a bit when we get to verse three, because that's what he's going to want to nail down. And I love that. I love that. The other word is halakha, halak, halak. And you'll find that word running all the way through the Old Testament. It is the word for walking, for walking. Um, and, and, and so we will find that again in... Um, Psalm 1, blessed is a man that walketh not, right? So walking is what we do. It's the idea of being on a journey, a course, and practicing a pattern of life called our walk. And Jesus came ultimately to model for us in 3D fashion what it means to be like God the Father. So when Jesus said, follow me, we're following him because what is Jesus doing? He's walking. He's living out the halakha. He's living out the pattern of life that he's called to. Another way that the apostle Paul is going to lay out this word, follow me, in terms of his walk is going to be in terms of his way, his way of life, his manner of life. You're going to see that shortly. So think about what Paul is saying. Follow me in my walk means that he's fairly confident that he's gotten a grasp on what God's will is for the believer so that the believer can be a witness to other people as to how to respond to God's word. If you tell somebody to follow you, you better know where you're going, right? 
And if you actually do know where you're going, you're going to have a lot of confidence in the fact that that path that you're taking, there it is again, um, hadas, uh, in, in, the, in, in the Greek is a term for course or way. That's why Jesus said, I am the what? Way, the path. I am the way, the life, uh, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the walk. I am the pathway. I am the, the course. I am the journey. And Paul said, follow him as he did what? Follow Christ. So he's actually asking you and I to see Christ through him to see Christ through him, and in seeing Christ through him, you will have a faithful pathway to God. That will take us back to Proverbs 4.18. The path of the just is a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. So what I am calling our attention to is that Paul is very confident in his walk with God, and he's confident enough to tell the Corinthians to follow him as he follows Christ. And we can't always say that, um, but he can. And this is going to work out for us very well. I want you to see three categories. Obviously, what Paul is doing is really laying out the paternal uh, responsibility as he understood himself to be. He had already said, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, he's a father to them. He already told them that, right? He's a spiritual father to them. They are born again through his labors. If in fact God used Paul to bring about the spiritual life of the Corinthians, does it not follow, no pun intended, that they should be able to follow him since he was the means by which they were born again, right? In other words, parents should live lives consistently enough for their children to follow. And that's the essence of what Paul is doing here. That's why I'm sharing it with you um, to open up. And there are going to be three fundamental areas in which Paul wants you to follow. This would constitute, in my own understanding, what it means to be a real human being. A human being is a person who thinks, who thinks. This is point number one in your outline. A human being is a person who thinks, thinks. A human being, therefore, also assesses and derives conclusions from conclusions from what they think so that they amass to themselves a kind of pattern of behavior. This is what Paul will call his ways, his ways. A human being thinks, they reason, they assess, and they draw up certain patterns. Another way that Paul will put it is the custom or the traditions. And I just want you to think that through because they are overlapping terms. We're going to see that shortly. Paul has figured out what it means to be a believer in Christ. He's been able to package them in doctrinal categories and then was able to share them with the congregation so that the congregation can know what it means to follow Christ as they follow Paul and follow Paul as he follows Christ. Three categories in our thinking, in our doctrine, and in our what? Conduct. So you guys have heard these recently. I'm going to pull them out again. This is the composite of Paul. Subpoint A says, in my thinking. Follow me in my thinking, my thinking walk. We all have a thinking walk. We all are on a journey in our mind, are we not? And, and the way Paul laid it out for the Corinthians is going to be taken up in 1 Corinthians 2, Verses 2 to 16, but I'm only going to read a few so you can capture what he means. Now, what he had done in the opening chapters of Corinth was to let the Corinthians know that 
he had been informed by others in Corinth that there were people who had come in who not only were teaching bad doctrine and corrupt ideas and bringing about division in that community, but they were also totally belittling Paul and discrediting his apostolic call. What that means is that Paul felt like he had to now explain to people what his objective was when he was there. So let him repeat once again what he said to them. We're over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I determined when I was with you not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You guys see that? The only thing he wanted the Corinthians to benefit from in his relationship with them was what it means to have Christ as your Savior in terms of his redemptive work on the cross. Now, this is really a big subject. When we get back to 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see what I mean by that. This, this portal of Christ crucified for the Christian will be how you understand why God made the world. The portal of the crucifixion of Christ for the Christian will be how you understand why God made the world. We'll come back there, but this is what Paul is saying. It might seem like a narrow subject. All I want to talk to you about is Jesus hanging on the cross. Now, he does not mean that in the physical, literal sense of a crucifix sort of focused paradigm. That would be wrong. First of all, we know that Jesus is no longer on a crucifix. So when one captures the optic of Christ crucified, we're talking about a past event that has brought about radical change with phenomenal future implications behind it. Does that make some sense? The reason we talk about Christ crucified is why he was hung there and what it promises for us. It's not that we are locking in on the perpetuity of him being on the cross. For if he were still on the cross, we would still be in our sins. We would not be saved. Salvation comes because he died and rose again. But the cross becomes a center point of divine purpose on the part of the Father that he promised to us. If you will, the cross is like an endowment promise from someone who has chosen to marry you and that endowment lets you know that everything inherent in those promises are certain because of the price he paid. Does that make some sense? Now notice what he goes on to say. I'm going to just walk through a, a few verses. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. We've been through that. If you want to, you can go back and get the lessons. Verse 5, in order that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in what? So notice this here is what we call a purpose clause. The reason that Paul preached Christ in him crucified was that Christ crucified produces in men and women a faith in God that allows them to now have a relationship with God that leads them to eternal life. Whosoever believes on me should not perish, but have eternal life. And so when he preaches Christ crucified, he wants their faith to stand not in the eloquence of men or the influences of men or the high scholarly knowledge of men, because that's shaky ground for your faith to be on. Your faith must be in Christ to Godward. 
And that's why he preaches fundamentally a gospel that didn't take on all of the external uh, aesthetic beauty of the sophist and the eloquent speaker. Verse 6, I want to walk through a few more. Howbeit we do speak wisdom among them that are mature. The word perfect, telos means mature. You guys got that, right? Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to what? All right, so again, what's interesting about what Paul, Paul is doing, he's saying is, you have been manipulated to think, you Corinthians, that the kind of preacher that you want is someone that's famous, that's popular, that's eloquent, that can actually uh, tickle your ears, that can, that can actually satisfy your sort of peripheral fancies in life, and that's what the sophists did, as you guys know. What Paul said was, I intentionally am not like that because I do not want your faith to be transported from God to men. That's a huge motivational factor because as you guys know, as I know, it's the 21st century, people do put their faith in a lot of other things than God and especially so-called Christians. So what Paul is saying here is I labor earnestly to make sure that you don't have a faith that has been hijacked, as, as it were, and put into a sphere where men can control it. Um, and so this is why he says what he says. Verse 7, I'll read a few more and go on. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Whatever that means, it was ordained by God before the world unto our what? That's crazy. He's saying there's a mystery here, a package of information that is undisclosed to humanity until it is made known about how God has prepared glory for those of us who believe him. That is huge. And what Paul says, that's what we talk about. We talk about the things that make for salvation and eternal glory. A great topic, isn't it? Verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world, what? Which none of the princes of this world, what? Which means that as a fundamental rule, all of your educated thinkers, all of your rational logicians, all of your powerful statesmen and politicians are unable to bring to the table a discussion around the mysteries of God because they are not acquired by human intellectual acumen. You don't know God's will, his purpose, his grace, his power, just because you have a PhD in logic or rhetoric or any of the other disciplines. That has to be revealed to you by way of a work of grace and God takes no pleasure in the high haughty thinking of men. By the way, you and I know he resists the proud and he does what? He gives grace to us. So the trajectory of Paul's conversation here is really around God deals with humble people. He doesn't deal with proud people. And so Paul didn't ever hanker to want to dress up, to appear uh, educated, or to be massively influential. We cater to those things in our empty, shallow society today, thinking that there's depth in our acumen because we are learned men and women. But you must know that to know God and the truth of the word of God and the gospel requires God to open your heart and reveal to you who he is. And that requires humility. And that's what Paul is saying here, um, that they would not have known, uh, well, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have what? 
So now this is where I taught you guys a couple of weeks ago the difference between presumptuous sin and what? Ignorance. Do you guys remember that? This is the ignorance standard here. God allows men and women to be blind and ignorant of his glory so he can save them. Did that come home? I don't want to stay here alone. But he allows them to be blind and ignorant so he can save them. For had they crucified him presumptuously, knowing what they were doing, they could not be saved. But Peter made it plain in Acts chapter 3, we know you did it in ignorance. But God has mercy on the ignorant. So even our rulers, our scientists, our logicians, our philosophers throughout the ages who have tried to explain the world and explain unseen things and explain mysteries of all sorts, they were doing it in ignorance. Am I making some sense? That means they're still savable, right? Right. And so this is what Paul is saying. So going back to our first point, because I, I want to make sure I economize the time here. Follow me in my ways. That is, follow me in the way I what? Think. Do me a favor. Go to verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 2, because there's a way he closes out there. And I want to make sure you guys get that as well. You you caught one you caught one portion of scripture. Go back to verse 14. You caught one portion where Paul says, my preaching and teaching to you was not to lift you up with pride, but it was to secure your faith in God. And that is really the goal of the ministry when properly done, to ground men and women in a reality of God. Now, notice what he says here. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. You guys got that? This is an exclusion principle. I have just been talking about that, have I not? I've been saying that men in their natural reasoning skills are limited and cannot have access to the reality of who God is until God opens their hearts. That's why Jesus said you must be what? You must be born again. Without being born again, you can't see the kingdom nor enter the kingdom of God. It was Nicodemus who had all of the accolades and the degrees and the standing as a Pharisee who is a model for us of what Paul is saying here, right? You can't get in because you're a Pharisee. Jesus told Nicodemus, you're on the outside of the kingdom. And you're so far on the outside of the kingdom, you don't even know it. But God was drawing Nicodemus, was he not? And so often when God is drawing a person, what he has to do before he brings them in is break them. Nicodemus had to be broken because you're not going to enter into the presence of the ineffable bliss in your pride. Nicodemus had to know he was blind. And this is what he's talking about. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they're what unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually what? So remember verse 14b, because I'm going to be talking to you about that as we touch on epistemology, all right? Now notice what verse 15 says. First Corinthians 2, 15. But he that is spiritual does what? It means that the man or the woman who has been given or endowed with the Spirit of God has access to truth at a level of understanding it. It does not mean you and I are omniscient. Do not buy into what we call the monoconceptual definition of, of a one meaning uh, word. Like the word all has to always be understood in its context. Is that not right? Right. It, it does not mean that a spiritual minded person knows everything about everything. They would be who? They would be God. It ain't but one God. And he's the one delivering knowledge. But what it is saying is if you are spiritual, you have at your availability insight and the potential for knowing whatever God wants you to know. But, but please know this is not God's objective for you and I to know everything. 
It's really only God's objective for us to know him. And in knowing him, we are satisfied with knowing that he knows everything. Does that make some sense? It's extremely important for you to get that because, you know, for you to think you know more than you really do would mean that you wouldn't be able to leave this room because your head would be too big for the doors and you'd have to stay here. Okay, let's keep going. One more verse. Look at this. For who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Now, I want you to capture this, but we have the mind of Christ. You know what Paul just did? He included the Corinthians in the privilege of being able to know God by his spirit in the same way that Paul did. You see the we factor, first person plural, but we have the mind of Christ. Did you capture that? But we have the mind. I'm saying that's a privilege. I'm not saying everybody operates out of it at the same level either. We all have it as a privilege. We should walk in it deeply, but we have it. That is a collective benefit for the body of Christ. So under point number one, we are to follow him in his thinking. We do have the mind of Christ. Would you say that, ladies and gentlemen? So point B, we are to follow him in doctrine. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses um, 16 and 17. This is something that he quickly laid down, and I want you to capture it too, because Paul was the one that wrote 80% of the New Testament, and he was the fundamental writer to the Gentiles. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I love this. This, again, is the way he lays it out. Wherefore, I beseech you, be followers of me. He said that in chapter 4, and then again in chapter 11. He means it, does he not? Verse 17, um, here it is. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into what? Of my ways, my walk, my doctrine, my life, which be in Christ. Do you see that? All right, so look at that verse because that verse gives you a Trinitarian formula of how God saves us. Paul here is a pattern of the father. Timothy is a pattern of the son. Timothy is sent by Paul to bring you and me into remembrance. Isn't that what it's saying? Isn't that the work of the Holy Spirit? John 16, and when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will bring you into remembrance of my things. So you see a pattern of redemptive work done here on the part of three persons, the uh, Paul as a type of the father, Timothy as a type of Christ, faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach in some churches. Is that what it says? Right. So what I want you to capture, uh, according to verse one, is this. What Paul taught at Corinth, he also taught at Galatia. What he taught at Galatia, he taught at Ephesus. When he taught at Ephesus, he taught at Colossae and Philippi. Everywhere he went, he taught the same things. Did that make some sense? Right, because he was teaching epistemologically and taxonomically. And we'll get that in a moment. In other words, the church in Asia Minor wasn't getting different doctrines than the church in Rome or the church in Jerusalem. They got the same Christ, the same teaching, the same manners. And that's a beautiful insight to gather. So that's under point number, uh, uh, sub point B, under point number one. Follow me in my thinking, follow me in my doctrine, and then um, follow me in my what? Right, and we would have seen that. Go back to verse uh, uh, 17, because he still says, I want you to capture it. Follow me in my conduct, verse 17 again. So notice what he says. He'll bring you into remembrance. Here we are at line number C. This is clause C. First 
first for this cause have I sent you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, faithful in the Lord, clause uh, D, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. That's his conduct, his manner of life as he teaches everywhere in all the churches. Therefore, Paul's conduct was worthy of following. Now look at it in 1 Corinthians 10, 33. So I've tried to stay in the book of Corinthians to help you see how what Paul was calling the church to do is to listen to how he thinks, embrace his doctrinal conclusions, and follow his pattern of life. That, that's, a high that's a high commendation of yourself, isn't it? Listen to the way I think. And, 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 and consider and embrace my doctrinal conclusions and follow my life. That's what was meant in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. We'll see that in a moment. He says, even as I do what? Please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many in order that they might be what? Is that a good ethic? Is that a good way to live? Here's what Paul was saying. I do not live to please myself. Now he's echoing the master, is he not? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, right? My meat, my food, my drink is to do the will of my father. And that is what a Christian is called to as well. So I'm laying out for you how Paul is commending himself to them. Now notice what he does, what he does in verse two of our text. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and notice verse two. I love this. Verse two, after, ever, after having said, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ, now I praise you. Now, do you see that phrase? Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. I love this. The, the first one is an imperative. The second one is an indicative. An indicative is what you do, is how you're behaving. An imperative is why you do it because you're told to. So in verse one, they were told to follow Paul. In verse two, guess what he's saying? And that's exactly what you're doing. Do you see it? Look at it again. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And I want you to look at that second line, that you remember me in all things. He's not saying, I praise you and I'm telling you to remember me. I praise you because you are remembering me. Okay, you are, it's actually in what is called the perfect verb form. What that means is everything that Paul has said to these people in Corinth, they fully embraced and they were not negligent to it. Like, like if Paul wrote you a personal letter and in that later letter, he gave you backdrop, backstory, gave you reasons for why he did what he did and then gives you an admonition or a set of instructions as to what you should do. You write him back and you let him know you understood everything that he said and you totally agree and you affirm that you agree by saying, so I'm doing this now. Did that make some sense? Right. I love this because here's what he's doing and I'm, I'm going to lift this up. It's obvious that the church at Corinth has a ton of issues. Is that true? I mean, a ton of issues, bad folk, bad doctrine, bad behavior, scary 21st century stuff. But it's obvious that there are many faithful believers in Corinth. That's what's being taught there. Did that come home? I want you to get it because this is really important. A church can have a black eye as the consequence of a few sinful, bad people who are either goats because they don't know the Lord or they are really dysfunctional sheep 
and lost in terms of their conduct. Did that make some sense? Right. A goat is lost and they'll come in and they'll nibble at the feet of the sheep and they'll they'll chew on them until the sheep dies. The sheep can get sick by the behavior of the goat. The goat can drive the sheep to mental destabilization. That's what goats will do. Okay, sheep aren't like that. Sheep are self-destructive. Sheep are silly enough to get into situations where they get disease from uh, poking their nose into something that they shouldn't. Goats are always the ones harming others. Okay, I want you to catch the uh, sort of metaphorical analogy. Real believers are often much more self-destructive than they are other destructive. Goats are always other destructive. Y'all follow what I just stated. So here it's important for you to get that. Now I praise you, brethren, that you are remembering me, have remembered me in all things, and you keep the ordinances. Do you see it? So you're remembering Paul, the person, how he thinks, how he behaves, and you're keeping the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Point number two, sub point A. Some of you are holding to what I have taught you. You see it? Now the thing I want you to capture in your outline so that on Friday when we parse it a little bit more, we can keep going. Paul said, some of you are holding. It's obvious that all of them weren't. We got way too many corrections that we have to engage in in the book of Corinth, don't we? But please capture this. There are many of them that were doing exactly what Paul said, for which Paul loved uh, the regions of Achaia. He would boast in the churches in Corinth because he knew there were many faithful brothers and sisters who were keeping up with him. This is a very important application. I've seen this in my own life and ministry after some 30-something years. You'll find true believers that are striving to live for the glory of Christ. Guess what? These are not people that are front and center of anything. They're generally very quiet and living out their lives in ways that are non uh, non-offensive and inconspicuous. I'm going to say it one more time. And, and actually, that's an imperative that Paul gives to the church at Thessalonica. Learn to be quiet and work with your own hands. Do not be a busybody in other people's business and serve the Lord in contentment with such things as you have. Those are the best sheep. The best people in any pastor's congregation are people that go to work, pay their bills, do what they got to do. They come to church, they serve, they're quiet, they do what they do. They're not looking for fanfare. They're not getting in other people's businesses. They just quietly serve the kingdom. Did that make some sense? That's what Paul is talking about. Some of you are holding to what I have taught you. That would certainly be what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, and then in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 12. Pull up uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. I just wanted to be in our eyes. We're almost done here for today, laying out a foundation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 2 is great, but uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 7 that we want. So uh, start back at verse 5. I, I, I love this. 1 Corinthians 1, 5. That, that in everything you are enriched by God in all utterance and in all knowledge. Verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. I love this. Paul is saying Christ is in the midst of you so that you do not come behind in any gift. Even <laughs> you are right up there. <laughs> so that you come, do not come behind in any gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great set of commendations in the opening letter. 
You read it, Paul is saying, Jesus is in the midst of you, confirming you. You got all the gifts you need and you're learning how to wait on the coming of the Lord. That actually is an attitude of knowing that the real solution to our world is the return of Jesus. So Christians live with an equilibrium of knowing that we do, we are called to be responsible in our society to whatever degree we can and influence it to whatever degree we can. But ultimately it gets fixed when Jesus comes. That gives the Christian great confidence. All right, so under subpoint B in our outline, for which I extol and laud you that you are doing, he says, continue to hold fast, grasp and guard. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter, um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and are keeping the ordinances. Do you see it? Now, if you're listening to me carefully, I'm giving you the verb forms. I am praising you. I am lauding you because you have kept what I have given you and you are keeping them. Does that make some sense? Right. You've kept and you are keeping. Well, in other words, when I sent it to you, you embraced it and you started walking in it and you are still walking in them. It's a powerful, powerful truth. Now I praise you. You see that phrase, now I praise you? I just want to touch on that briefly. That means I tell everybody everywhere I go how much I love the Corinthians. That word is the idea of lauding. It gives the explosive expression of what you see in Luke's gospel when Jesus is born and the angels in heaven begin to do what? Praise God and glorify him. That's the same expression in Acts chapter 3, verse 8, when Peter said, silver and gold have I none to the lame man that was there, lame all his life. But that which I have, I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And that brother rose up walking and leaping and what? Praising God. It was not a whisper. What Paul is doing is saying, I love to tell people about you guys at Corinth. Isn't that a wonderful way to encourage the community? Man, I tell everybody wherever I go about you saints at Corinth. So you see, I'm giving you guys another insight into the obedient saints at Corinth. Because again, the troublemakers are always the ones we have to always deal with more largely and often. And this can happen too. I'll, I'll just give you this caveat and keep going. This can happen too with kids. Like when you have a bunch of kids, the one or two that have issues are the one or two that mom and daddy has to spend most of the time with. And you know what it will do? It will agitate the other brothers and sisters. Because they'll go, why do they always, why, why do they always have to pay attention to him? Why do they have to always hunt him down? Why is it always about them? Right. That, that's often how it is. And sometimes that is intentional on the part of that child that wants all the attention. I think human beings are just like children. They want attention. They want attention. And so this is what I love about what Paul is doing. He's saying, you are remembering me in all things and you are keeping in the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. I'll give you one more verse on this and then we'll move on. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses two and three. I love the way he puts this. This here he's talking about the resurrection because there's some clowns in the church that are saying Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. That would make God a liar. That would make Christ uh, a liar. That would make the Holy Ghost a liar. That would make all the witnesses a liar, right? That's just untenable. But here's what he says. Verse 
Uh, I have to start at verse 1 because it's about the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I've already preached to you, which you have already received, and wherein you already what? That's an essence of what we call histomy or epistemology. Right? You stand on the gospel. The gospel is your, the basis for your worldview. How you understand the world is through the gospel. You stand on it. And epistemological understanding is where you get your certainty about who you are, your certainty about who God is, your certainty about how the world works, your certainty about your purpose in the world. Does that make some sense? Yes, of course. This is why they kill people for preaching the gospel. Because the gospel tells you who God is who man is and what the condition of man is and what he needs, what the remedy is. The gospel is the greatest threat to the devil anywhere in the world. So he says that they have stood upon the gospel. Now notice verse two, by which you're also saved. Here it is. If you do what? Keep in memory what I preached unto you. If you keep playing with the tassels, because what do the tassels do? They bring you into remembrance. You play with the tassels. You don't ignore the tassels because the tassels remind you of who you are in Christ. Beautiful, isn't it? It's very important to capture that. Unless, unless you have believed in vain. This is a wild uh, concern for Paul, and I get it. I get it because what will happen, the exhortation here is this. There are a lot of people who will come to church. They'll get excited. They'll get baptized. They swear they love Jesus to death. Some trouble comes and they're gone. That's the parable of the sower and the seed. You do know that. Some fell on, on the wayside, others on shallow ground, yet some on thorny ground, and then finally some on good ground. So that means only one quarter of the four was solid. That's, that's called the kingdom of God. This is why you see so many people come and go. And it's always been that way. You must know that. And therefore, there is always in an exhortation a need to encourage people to continue. Is that right? There's an exhortation to encourage people to continue unto the end because according to Matthew 24, verse 13, can you pull that up? He that endures to the end, the same shall be what? That's, that's the exhortation. That's the exhortation. Listen, but he that shall endure unto the middle of the race... The same shall be what? So this is what we call an exhortation to the doctrine of perseverance. The race is not to the swift, neither is it to the strong. The race is not to the wisest man, but that turtle who knows how to just keep it moving by the grace of God until he crosses the yellow tape. And that's only by God's grace. So point number two is laid out. We'll come back and maybe touch on it Friday. I want to get to the, uh, the question that, that the, um, the next imperative that Paul lays out. Verse three. We're going to spend a little time here and then we're shutting it down. Notice what he says. But I would have you, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Do you see that? So I want to stay right there for a moment. I'm just going to open it up just a tad. I'm just going to open it up a tad. So now what Paul does here, 
is the inverse of what he does in other places. Remember what he did in the uh, uh, earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians? He said, brethren, I would not that you would be ignorant. Remember that? I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. That's how 1 Corinthians chapter 10 opens up. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1, I believe it is. This is how he opens up. Moreover, brethren, I would that you should not be what? Ignoye, that is agnostic. Today, agnosticism is a kind of proud thing that people engage in. They engage in the idea that I don't know. I don't know. I'm humble. I don't know. Uh, sometimes I don't know is just an excuse for I don't want to know. Did that come home? Because if you have to know, that makes you more accountable, doesn't it? And so going back to our text, I just want to spend a few minutes here laying out the epistemological um, urgency here. And then I'm going to give you a taxonomy uh, of the order. And then we're going to come back on Friday and really enjoy this epistemology is the, um, the, the ability to actually be certain and grounded in what you know. Epistemology is to be certain or acquire the uh, evidence is to be certain about what you know. Um, certain and dogmatic are two different things. I shouldn't even get into that. Certain and presumptuous are two different things. When a person is certain what they know, they are operating out of a set of criterion that allows them uh, ideas, information, sources, by which information sources by which they can draw a conclusion that is strong, a conclusion that is strong. This is acquiring all of the necessary evidence so that you can say, I know what I know. Okay. Like we all know some things, do we not? Right. I know that I'm a man. There's a ton of information that I have acquired over 63 years that lets me know I'm, I'm not being presumptuous. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being haughty. I'm being epistemologically certain that I am a man, okay? And, uh, and, and, and so one can walk in certain knowings and it's not arrogant. That makes sense, right? So we can deal with a whole category of them and you should be able to do the same thing. We're gonna talk about what that means for a moment. He says, I would have you to what? No. I would have you to know. We do is our Greek verb there. Don't worry about it. Um, it's just a phrasing that I'm using for people who may know a little bit about grammar. And it simply means to understand, to understand as a consequence of sight or what we would call objectivity and conclusion. Sight and conclusions. Okay, it really has to do with evidence being brought before you that allows you to analyze it objectively. You organize it and come to a conclusion. Did that make some sense? So epistemology is not just kind of a blind emotional sort of bias into something. Well, I believe it just because I believe it. That's not epistemology. That's tautological circular reasoning. Okay, it doesn't mean anything. It's gobbledygook. Okay, and so... But I would that you know. So, and what is it that he wants us to be certain about? Let me do a few things before we get there. So I use it, I'm using the term on the point number three. Be sure about this reality 
Be sure about this reality. Be sure about this reality of God because God is the one that brings about the reality of a thing. This is very important. So I want you to see how this word works. Matthew chapter 6 verse 8. Notice how this word is used. This is going to be our word to know. Be sure about this reality. Be not therefore like unto them. This is, G- this is Jesus talking to the disciples. For your father what? For your father what? So he's certain, isn't he? So he's able to see, he's able to observe, he's able to analyze, he's able to deduce, deduce, he's able to draw a conclusion. Your father what? That's the same word. So this is interesting. Paul is saying, I want you to know about our subject the same way God knows about his subject. So I'm creating an equality of understanding, an equation between the father knowing and your knowing. This here has to do with the kind of knowing. Of course, God knows it infinitely. You and I know it limitedly, but we can know it with the same level of certainty. Okay, I want to give you a few more before we before we shut down. Chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. I'm going to run through about four or five of these on this, and then we'll pick it up on Friday. If you then, being evil, here's the word again, we don't know how to give good ch- gifts unto your children. What is Jesus uh, 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 inferring? That parents know how to treat their kids good, right? That would also imply that the parents have observed their kids, see what their kids need, know how to distinguish between what's good and bad for them, and to give them what's good. Again, that gets into we don't knowledge, understanding, sight, and conclusion. So sight is the idea of being able to put your eyes on the subject matter and weigh it out, okay? This is not merely a subjective uh, assessment. This is profoundly objective. And uh, I want to go, go through a few more. Chapter 8, verse 6, Matthew 8, 6 as well. In Matthew 8, 6, he said, now, let me see here. Is, it, is that the one that I want? Let me get down here. No, Matthew 9, 6. Matthew 9, 6. Notice what it says. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, verse 6. But that you may what? That you may what? Now watch this. That the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive. That's our word we know. Now what he's about to do is a miracle. And they are about to what? See it. Their eyes are going to be set on an event. And when their eyes are set on the event, they're going to be able to draw a conclusion about that event that corresponds with Jesus saying that he's the son of God. Did that make sense? All right. This is a perfect example of it. This is a perfect example of how we acquire epistemological certainty. We look at a thing. We analyze it. We use all the tools of critical thinking. We don't distort the evidence. We're fair and honest with it. This is called uh, evidential science. This is what we do as men and women that wants to see the world the way that God sees it, right? We look at it for what it is. We're not trying to force it and twist it and modify. All they're doing is watching Jesus handle his business. Now, here's what they know. They know that only God can heal somebody. That's what they know, right? You and I should know that too. And notice what it says. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed and go unto your house. Verse 7. And he what? And he what? And departed to his what? Jesus is the Son of the living God. If he can raise a brother from the dead, he can forgive sins. 
This is what we mean by epistemological certainty. It's not just kind of pie in the sky thinking. It's being able to take all the evidence that's brought to you, organize that evidence in a way in which the conclusion becomes obvious. See, by the way, Jesus is God's epistemological certainty. Like, see, because God the Father is unseen. He's incomprehensible. He's inapprehensible. Jesus had to come to reveal him, did he not? So Jesus becomes God's epistemology so we can be certain that God exists. Somebody will get that one, to one day. It's important for you to know. It's important for you to know. Beautiful thing. Give you one more verse. Got a, a few more to land down here. This is so important. So I love this. When we talk about being sure about the reality of things, listen to Hebrews 11.3. This is the next word here. Hebrews 11.3. This is why I can tell you, you know, over the centuries, especially since the Enlightenment period, with all of your philosophers from the West and the East and uh, the, the diabolical ones who have bought purely into what we would call um, secular science, where they assert that there is nothing that exists that we cannot see. Every, everything that is unseen is purely hypothetical. Well, that's where we are today in this postmodern age of everything is a construct. Did y'all get that? Like if there's no reality behind unseen things, then what we see as empirical can be shaped by our own judgments and our own machinations. We can make things, we can speak things into existence. But if the things that are made have a real substantial power, authority, or framework behind them, then you and I need to know what's behind what's made in order to know that the thing that is made is made because of something else and not itself. Does that make some sense? This is what the Hebrew writer is about to say. Here it is. Watch this. He says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Do you see that first line? All right, so I'm going to help you with that and I'm going to close. I love what the Hebrew writer just did because the Hebrew writer is telling the men and women very clearly the nature of faith in verse one. Faith is the substance of things and it's the evidence of things. Right, hope for things is data. Not seeing things is data. When you hope for something, you have had in your heart an aspiration that rises up based upon promises, based upon ideas. Did that make some sense? Right. And so when we talk about hope, we're not talking about an ethereal thing that is not rooted in epistemological certainty. It is right. When minute, I could stay here for a long time. This is where you have to be careful that you don't let your faith be hijacked by mystics. Faith is always rooted in promises. It's always rooted in promises. Faith is always rooted in promises because promises are expectations of things that we have a great deal of confidence are and can affect what the promises have asserted. Does that make some sense? All right, very important. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were what? Framed, structured, laid out in a very uh, disciplined, mechanical, intellectual, rational way. We, by faith, understand. Understand, that's epistemology right there. We have our epistemological certainty on the grounds that the worlds were framed by the what? All right, so why did the Hebrew writer say that? Because that's what the word of God said. 
All right, so I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to close here. You, you got to get it. This is where you got to keep playing with the tassels. I was, it was my son. My, Dave, you, know, you guys know Nate, my guitar player up here. And uh, I love him up here because Nate was one of, the, one of my kids. He's my fourth oldest. He's my fifth oldest. Uh, I got eight oldest, but he's the fifth oldest. And uh, we'll come together in our music ministry and we'll be, we'll be working through hymns and stuff like that. And uh, what he said on, on Saturday was, as soon as I heard the hymn, I knew it because that hymn was drilled in me when I was two years old. You see what it means to grant them an inheritance by putting the word in them when they're children? Right, so Nate's a musician on top of that. You know, he's studying for pharmacology and so he's got a brilliant head. But what he really loves is the fact that his mom and dad taught him the word of God early on and taught him the hymns early, early on. So all he needed to do was hear one line and then it comes back. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Now, I'm, what I'm getting at is what we call certainty predicated upon evidence. Now, Nate is a believer. He has faith in God. Why is that? Because he has been confronted with, he has been taught and catechized the word of God since a very early, very early child. Does that follow with you guys? It's, 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 it's very important to capture it. Now, the reason I said that is because I actually know the verse from which this statement was inspired. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the what? So when we say by faith, how does a person obtain faith? By hearing. And that by the what? You don't have faith apart from the word. So if it's by faith that I know the worlds were framed by the word of God, is it not going to be the word of God that tells me that the worlds were framed by the word of God? Psalm 33 is going to be one explicit verse. I want to start at verse 1. And then I want us to look at verse 6, 8, and 9, Psalm 33, 1. Rejoice, the, rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. It ought to be, right? God is worthy. Look at verse 6. Um, uh, verse 6, just jump to verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the what of his mouth? So how is it that we know that the heavens and the earth were framed by the word of God. Psalm 33, verse 6. Did he come home? Right. So it's extremely important for you to remember. If you are my disciples, you will continue in my word. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. We live in a society today that doesn't know his left hand from his right hand because we have gotten a million miles away from epistemological certainty, which can only be granted through a knowledge of him who created everything. Does that make some sense? All right, so epistemology is what we're dealing with. Now, let me just give you the order of events. Going back to verse three, we'll close down. This, here's, this here is a powder keg of controversy, especially today. Here's what Paul says in 11 verse 3. But I would not, I would that you know that the head of every man 
is what? Now, so the first one is the man. And that the head of who? After every man, the head of the woman. Y'all reading your Bible? So y'all don't even know. All right. So we are talking about what? Headship. We're talking about headship or hierarchy. All right. So we got the man. We got the woman. The head of the head of the man is who? And the head of the woman is who? And the head of Christ is who? God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. What you have is a hierarchy of what we call taxonomy. Taxonomy, that is order. Is God first? Does Christ proceed from the Father? Does the man proceed from the Father and the Son? Does the woman proceed from the man? Does the family proceed from the woman and the man? Yes. So what we're dealing with, and I want to talk about it on Friday, is how that the enemy's whole job is to destroy the hierarchy of God, the Father, God, the Son, Adam, the man, the woman in Adam, the family in Adam and Eve. Did y'all get that? That's what we're going to unpack on Friday. We have to because Paul is dealing with it now. He's dealing with an argument of equality between men and women. Uh, the challenge that Paul is going to deal with is helping the church understand that we have equality, but we have distinctions of roles and distinctions of callings. And that is what's being missed in our day as well, as you guys know. We're working on fixing that on Friday. So it's going to be really, really important study for us to, to carry through. All right, we're going to stop now so we can get into prayer. We'll pick up this on Friday.